Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, and MBs, and welcome to a special extra episode of Warrior Death Show. We're not covering anime today, although we are covering something that has been very anime at various points in its life cycle in the various forms it's come out. And indeed, it is coming back in a remake that, well, I mean, come on, you all know what it is. It's Final Fantasy VII Remake. It's releasing April 10th, uh, 2020. And having recently been reading stuff about it and just kind of soaking in all the, um, the fan opinion about it, I've been feeling very nostalgic about it, and I want to talk about some of the things I really, really love about that game. I mean, it's so talks about, it's, you know, like, what else could I bring to the table? But honestly, I just want to gush for a bit. But I don't want to gush alone, of course. I have brought someone along to help me with that. Uh, joining me today on the mic is ESPN League of Legends aficionado, anime expert, and all-around cool person, Emily Rand! Yay! I was going to say, did you... Were you around when Advent Children was, like, the yes. top-rated anime? Which is, like, kind of dumb, not gonna lie. But oh, and I, I honestly remember... I'm gonna get attacked already, I can feel it. I, I remember literally nothing about Advent Children. Just I, throwing that out there. I, you know, later in this uh, talk, you and I, I think, I'll have to mention some things I do remember from Advent Children. Because... <laughs> It's already at the risk of us derailing a little bit, but screw it, this is completely unstructured, folks. We're just having a chat. Um, like, Advent Children does some things that I think I admire the intent, but there's also some elements in it that I find completely contrary to the story of the actual game, not least of which being uh, Reno's character, because he's a complete goofball in that film. And his most pivotal moment in the game is, of course, when he pushes the button to kill several hundred, if not thousands of people. Um, <laughs> bit of a tonal whiplash there, but anyway. I mean, Reno, like, I feel like they didn't really know what to do with this character anyway. It's yeah. also like, uh, you know, I think if I had to hazard a guess, just because I believe from from like a from gleaning this, I again, like, I haven't played Crisis Core. I barely remember Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I have a sneaking suspicion that Reeve is going to play like a larger role in the remake just because he's already introduced super early in the trailers and apparently he has like a really large role in like the post worlds uh, of the original game. Hmm. So Interesting. Uh, indeed, I think uh, something I'll be bringing up later is the idea of how remakes and reboots work. Um because I, from what I understand it, by the way, folks, just to stop myself short here, what I should mention is that Emily here, um, she has actually written an article discussing some of her thoughts about the remake. Uh, we're not living to talk about these in any more detail than that, <laughs> but I would, however, very strongly advise you to check that article out. I will make sure that the link to it is included in the text uh, that this podcast goes out on. It's a great read. You're definitely worth looking at it. Uh, and of course, you're probably more familiar than I am because to put my cards on the table, I don't currently have my PlayStation 4, and given everything, I'm not going to have it back for months, because it's her friend's house. Oops. Uh, so I'm not going to have the opportunity to play the demo anytime soon, but as I say, this is more focused on the actual original game, and just some memorable elements of it, and also some elements of game design that I still think really hold up, and how I wish more modern games did things like Final Fantasy VII, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so, Emily, if I may just ask you very quickly, though, um, in terms of Final Fantasy VII, though, like, um, where does it rank for you? Like, how high is it ranking, like, the pantheon of all uh, of the games? That you... I know that's a really hard question to ask. No, that's... it is. It is just because of, like, uh, it had such a, like, pivotal point. Mm. Like, there, there are a couple of games in my life that just had really kind of 
transformative uh, or like really, really formative experiences for me Mm -hmm. as a kid, Um, especially since I wasn't. So, like, full disclosure, I wasn't allowed to play video games, technically, by my parents when I was really young, because I had really strict parents. And so, my friend had this computer with every single, like, MS-DOS game to date. And and, and these were, like, older, like, I'm not that old, I'm 36, but um, their parents worked for IBM, so they had, like, a ton of stuff on there. Hmm. So, I would go to their house, and we would play, like, Tank Wars and SimCity Nice, um, nice. So, like, SimCity 2000 was a really formative game. I don't know how I'd rank. Uh, Final Fantasy VII is there. Uh, StarCraft is there. Yes, um, yes. So I don't know, like, how I'd... I don't think I can look at it objectively in, like, any way, shape, or form. Um, I will say that the thing I loved the most about Final Fantasy, because I, again, I saw it at a friend's house. And this was by the time I was in high school, so my parents were getting more lenient about it, so they mm-hmm. bought it for me that Christmas when I, like, begged them to. Um, <laughs> but when I first saw it, I was like, wow, like, I didn't realize that, because I'd never played an RPG before, really, and hmm. I didn't realize that games could do that. Like, I didn't realize that they could have a story yeah. like Final Fantasy did. So I think that... In terms of, like, uh, I know there's, like, this ongoing debate of it's Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy VI. Uh, and <laughs> and it, I think to that note, it really, really depends on a lot on when you started, play, which game you started playing first. Um, yeah. I'm in agreement with you, actually. I think that some of my own experience with trying Final Fantasy VII for the first time mirrors your own. I played it uh, Friends for the very first time. In fact, the actual time that I played it through from start to finish wasn't a copy that I owned myself. It was one that I had borrowed from that same friend. And similarly to you, I think that was the first time I'd ever really encountered a story in a video game, which is not to say that like the stuff I had played before and didn't have a story, but like this was one where I felt genuinely engaged by it rather than just being a kind of window dressing. Um, I mean, there's still moments that stick in my mind, even from when I very first played. I mean, I'll I'll put my cards away. Well, I'll admit I'm a big man, and yes, I did cry when Eris died. Spoilers, by the way. Sorry. Um, oh yeah, this is gonna have a ton of spoilers, by the way. Oh, oh, especially yeah. since I just replayed the game. So, like, as part of the review I did, I just I've been replaying the original. Mm-hmm. There are so many amazing things about it, but yeah, like I again, like to that point, I didn't know a video game could do that. Because whenever, when you make a directorial choice like that, right, like, it's not just a, like, you talked about game design, it's not just a, from an emotional standpoint, you care about this character because of what has happened in the story, mm-hmm. but you also care about this character because you put a fuck ton of effort into yeah. building them up. I know. And then, sudden, like, and then suddenly you're missing this, what has likely become, like, a really key component of your party that you can no longer have yeah so like it sounds really callous to compare it to like a character death but like by design it really makes you feel that loss yeah exactly i I mean i remember post eris's death uh, in following end of this too by the way i I need i'll talk about the death in a moment because this there's one small thing about the way that that whole scene and the subsequent fight with jenova life plays out that i adore uh, in a very painful way, of course, but <laughs> um, but like I remember after that point, I was like, 
who on earth is going to fill those boots now? I mean, I think at that point, my party was Cloud and Vincent, because I was, you know, obviously too taken in by Vincent's coolness, quote-unquote. <laughs> uh, oh, and by the way, I've never played Dirge of Cerberus, and I will never play it. You, you can put a gun to my head. I ain't touching that. <laughs> no chance. Um, but, like, I, yeah, like, you literally found it very difficult to find spells to put, like, to pinch in place of uh, Aeris at that point, and it's still such a like I'll, I'll talk about that moment now actually like if there's one thing i really like about seven in general is i think that the writers and the people who are making the game had a firm grasp on tone and how to handle it and that is crazy for a game that in the space of 30 minutes goes from oh yeah the entirety of this eighth of a city has been massacred by the company that rules it to walmart oh sorry walmart Oh, God, just, just, yeah. just, just, just wall market in general, like. <laughs> but that never felt jarring to me, even as a kid, and it doesn't even like the last time I played it. But <clears throat> in um in the Genova life fight, uh, what I love is that after the cutscene plays in which Ares is killed by Sephiroth, the her theme still continues playing straight into that fight. It doesn't stop. It doesn't go to the regular boss theme or even the Genova theme in general. It carries the mood through that you feel of like, wait, did that just fucking happen? And you feel bitter and angry and you, like, when I first played that as a kid, I was just like, fuck you! I was going I was going absolutely mad trying to murder the hell out of Genova life as a result of that. Tough fight, by the way, thanks to Aqualung. I remember that enemy skill yeah. fondly. Ugh, um, that, was a, that was a bitch. I think the other thing that it does in that regard is, if you remember the the part that comes after, yeah, is ice. So it's like the icicle town and then the the cliff, and so you go from Aerith Aerith's theme to going to this town where you learn about her mom through these home movies that Professor Gast has yes. put in his thing, and it's like. Uh, like, first of all, again, that relationship, a bit questionable. I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious to see yeah. what they do about it. It's like, like from the videos, it does seem like they loved each other, but it's also kind of like a, which came first? Like, were you research specimen first or his wife first? Kind of weird thing. Um, was, but, was that part of the, was that part of the Tinder advert that they met on? Yeah, like, you know, like, looking, like looking well, for how long, did that happen? <laughs> yeah, looking for long-term relationship and or research projects. Hmm. Like, it, see, it seems highly problematic in a few ways that, like, I definitely didn't recognize as a kid. But even, even going back now as an adult, like, it's, it's a very cute, like, despite myself, it's a very cute relationship to watch. Um, it's really heartbreaking when then, you know, Shinra comes in and and uh, basic basically kills him right in front of her and then tries to take Eris uh, and Ifalna like and so you have to you've just gone through the death of this character you don't have this this very crucial part of your party that no one else in the party can replace like none of them can do what Eris does that's even that's even in gameplay terms because I think that there's yeah. literally no other character with the exception of Vincent who is as good a magic user as she is the rest yeah. of them are just and kind of a toss up. One of the things I can say about the remake that I'm allowed to say that I already wrote about, as you know, is that, like, the battle abilities of each character are, like, much more distant from each other. Like, they all, every single person plays incredibly differently. So you're also going to feel that loss tremendously because 
She does not play like Barrett, does not play like Tifa, does not play like Cloud. Yeah, um, I, I mean, the Final Fantasy games around that time, uh, this was even more pronounced in Final Fantasy VIII. The, the issue that you kind of ran up against is that the characters didn't feel distinct in terms of their own gameplay, but more so just what materia, or in the case of eight, what junctions they had. And indeed, that was all the more apparent in eight, with the system mechanics allowed you to swap junctions around so easily. Uh, it made it all the more clear that you, they didn't really have much uniqueness in terms of their fighting skills beyond their limit breaks, and certain unique attributes like Barrett's long range, for example. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> I, I agree with you on that. I'm very curious to see how to see the actual remake in action and how it does that with the, the, all the other characters as well if it gives them all their own flavor um i wonder if they'll try and make a riff on dirge of cerberus with vincent though like it's going to be a third person action character thing again with him in the in the remakes battle system except they'll do it right this time well that's what kind of what i'm realizing and why i brought up uh, uh Ad advent children right off the bat a because you mentioned that we're not talking about anime and advent children was at the top of like highly rated anime for way too long but um mm. the other reason is that i feel like there is a lot of final fantasy 7 like universe content that i've missed out on mm. and that i think a lot of people who are like me who played the original and are just really, really attached to it, but haven't had time to delve into any of the other side content beyond, like, maybe some fan fiction. Uh, it's... Which isn't official side content, so it doesn't count. Um, <laughs> you, you have a whole group of people who are definitely going to be playing this remake because they have a really large emotional attachment to the original, but haven't had... Uh, any sort of experience with some of the subsequent universe stuff. So hmm. in that way, it's also kind of interesting because all that story is going to be new to me anyway, because again, I haven't played Dirge of Cerberus or uh, I haven't checked out uh, Crisis Core or anything else hmm. that they've done. Yeah, I've not played either of those two. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely curious to see what happens. I mean, the reason I was mentioning about the spirit of remakes is before is because, well, I haven't recently replayed uh final fantasy 7 nor have i actually played the demo of the remake uh what i did play play recently that got me thinking on this lines was black mesa the um fan made uh by the crowbar collective remake of the original half-life in the modern day source engine uh which i'll not dwell on for too long because obviously this is not a black mesa discussion but what they did is that they for a lot of lot of elements, like they actually kept it pretty faithful to the original while giving it the new polish, but they did also change things around. There are new combat encounters, new AI. Uh, the entirety of the alien Zen world levels have been completely redesigned and look utterly spectacular, um, but still feel like part of the original story. Like they don't they don't diverge too far, and so I'm actually glad that the remake is deciding to do this because I think that. It's possible to remain true to the spirit of a, of a game when rebooting it or remaking it, if, unless you're doing a HD remaster, which is just, you know, you're going to obviously not try and rock the boat too much. But I do think that some change in iteration can be welcome. I mean, if it gets to the point where all you're really doing is, say, is just swapping material around between characters and not doing anything interesting with them beyond their limit breaks that makes them unique. Um, I mean, to go back to our point about replacing Eris after she died... As I say, it was a toss-up, but part of the reason it was a toss-up, I'm sorry to say, was because 
I didn't feel there was much to distinguish them. Uh, I think I ended up staying on Red, actually, in the end, because he was the most well-balanced uh, out of them all. But even then, I don't think it would have really mattered. And you can argue that maybe that's a good thing or not. But no, uh, I'm very curious to see how it will change things around and hopefully not stray too far from what made it good, uh, but also keep it to spirit. But that being said, there's some stuff that I do want to bring up from the original that I still really, really like. And I'm also just curious to see what they'll do with it. Um, so I suppose now's a good time to save for me to ask, I don't know again if you can tell me about this or not, but I remember a lot of Barrett's dialogue in the original being, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, Donald Duck speak, because it was all just like hashes at, you know, like that classic kind of swearing censorship. Um, how would they, like, they're obviously not going to translate that into the new game, um, but I'd be curious to see what they ultimately do with his dialogue uh, this time around. Um, if they want to play into the fact that he was just a Mr. TXP, or if they want to <laughs> want to try and make him more grounded, which is difficult for a man with a chain gun for an arm, but hey, there we go. Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to try their best to keep the spirit of that from what I've seen. I won't go into it any further, but you touched on something that I I kind of wrote about in my thing, but in terms of um, a game that where you're reading like everything primarily through text, bringing that to speaking is a lot different just mm. because of the cadence of how people hear as opposed to how they read um Mm. and i think this there's a bit in my opinion and again this could be like nostalgia tinged but there's a bit that is lost in terms of how the world itself seeps into every character when you talk to them like for example, there's that guy on the train where you talk to him and he's like, this is my house. Make yeah. Yourself at home. And then yeah. the next time you talk to him, he's like, wow, you guys are the only people that will talk to me in my house. And it's like, it's very obvious that he's just a homeless man who's living in the train, in the mm. train car. Or like, for example, there's that other couple who you talk to them outside of the train station in sector seven. And they're mm. like, they're like, I can't take it anymore. Like, first of all, you talk to them the first time, and it's very obvious that they're a couple with massive relationship issues. But then <laughs> you talk to them the next time, they're both just like, I can't take it anymore. And they kill each other. It's like wow. a weird, like, double suicide. And it's very... Like, I'm not going to say it's casual, but it's more. it's definitely more shocking because wow. of how instant it is. And just... I mean, that's the way I interpret it. Like, maybe a commenter can correct me, but again, playing it just... uh, I mean, I went through that part uh, about, like, right after I I played the remake because I wanted to play the first Midgar section just to be able to review the remake part. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and I was really struck by a lot of the things that people say in Mm. terms of when you you talk to the, the NPCs, they all add, like, a really specific, and in the case of Midgar, like, really depressing flavor to just how dire the situation in this city is. And, like, I'm sure we're going to go ahead in future parts of this very podcast and talk about how prescient Final Fantasy VII is. Oh, man. as, As related to our current world. But, um... 
Uh, the the thing that really struck me about playing replaying the original is how much world building came through and really offhanded comments, like talking to everyone in Wall Market. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of terrible, sketchy shit going down there, but yeah. it's par- parts of it are also like really humorous because these people and like and kind of. Like, it, it balances it between, like, humor, and then you think about it more, and then it just becomes incredibly depressing. Mm. Uh, because these people are just sitting there, like, doing their best while they're in a city where they're obviously getting no support. Um, you know, there's no, there's, there's no way out for them. It's literally and, codified in the in the structure of the city itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's not subtle. Like I, I was I, when I played the remake, I was like, "Wow, this is very like unsubtle." Was the original like this? Uh, like, or is it just that I'm more aware of these things as an adult? And I went back and I was like, "Oh no, the original is just as unsubtle." So <laughs> yeah, uh, it's nice that they kept that as well. Mm. You know what? Um, now that you've brought that up, though, I actually want to point something out that I think actually really holds up well about Final Fantasy VII. It's kind of something that I've noticed about a lot of video game fiction in particular, but it's also true of a lot of general dystopian fiction and also post-apocalypse ones, which is the comparison I'm going to use here is what people have called the best PC game of all time, which is Deus Ex. Now, Deus Ex has some similarities in terms of the text to Final Fantasy VII, specifically that there is a ravaging of the, you know, the homeless and the poor in it. But where Final Fantasy VII is superior over Deus Ex, I know that that's going to cause some people to come kicking down my door, and it won't be for toilet paper and rice, that's for sure. But anyway, um, what I think is interesting is that in Final Fantasy VII, the people who are poor and suffering, they're not suffering because of some sort of plague or illness or quote-unquote bioweapon or whatever you want to call it that often gets invented for these kinds of works fiction, whereas in Deus Ex, you have the Grey Death, which well, that plays into the whole conspiracy angle. But I kind of find it interesting to think about how a lot of works, apart from Final Fantasy VII, which is definitely to its credit, find it difficult to manufacture sympathy in us because we're so unfortunately used to seeing, like, you know, the suffering of the poor and the homeless regularly, that they have to conjure up something brand new in order to, you know, make us care. Like, oh, this the player won't be that fussed about all these people who are poor and sick and dying and all that. Why don't we invent a plague that's made by the Illuminati? There we go. That's something they can point to as being, you know, cruel and unusual. Uh, but yeah, like, Shinra are just bastards. for Like, in the way that corporations are bastards, because they don't care about the lives of the people, in this case, literally underneath them. That's actually why I'm really curious to see what they do with the Turks. And yeah. what they do, and what they do with Reef, because I think here you have, and again, like the I guess parts of this are are gonna get like a bit political, just because it's inevitable. Like Final Fantasy VII is a political game. Um, <laughs> you're right. You're right. And, and any anyone that says it isn't. Like, oh, like that chap who really isn't paying attention. There was that chap I saw on Twitter recently who was quoted as saying that all literary analysis was disgusting when people were pointing out that Final Fantasy VII was political. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, it happens. Um, but I think the the big thing with this game is that it shows a massive corporation where, you know, all of the the cogs in this machine are complicit and yet not all of them are 
Um, I mean, for a game that's as unsubtle as this game is, it's really nuanced in some of the characters it portrays. Like, for example, you have Seng, who was apparently a childhood friend of Aerith's. We don't know why. Like, like it, it, the game never explains. It's just like they grew up together. Hmm. We don't really know what happened there. So it's obvious on one level he cares about her, and then he's also working for this corporation who's tracking her down, and he is the one in charge of that. You have uh, Reno, who is... I mean, he's very... he He's pretty goofy in the original game, too. Like, in the, in the first part, again, like you said, he is the one that brings the plate down, right? Uh, mm. upon, upon orders. But then he also is just if you as you go through the game he's like the turks you just find that they're they're gossipy co-workers um they They turn into kind of team rocket almost they they have that entire scene in in wutai where they are just on vacation and they have to team up with you to fight don corneo and oh yes there there's like there's a lot of weird back and forth between humor and these people do awful, awful things. And and similarly with Reeve, he is portrayed as someone who, from the get-go, is very hesitant about all of this. Uh, mm. You know, he he goes into that, which is one of personally one of my favorite lines. And I don't know if they they cut it or not. I hope they did it. But it's the the one where he's like. They're in the meeting with Heidegger and oh, man, they're talking yeah. to President Shinra and he's just like, uh, you know, I, I don't think we should do this. And uh, I believe it's President Shinra that tells him, read flush your personal problems down with the rest of your crap, which is one of my favorite lines uh, <laughs> that's a, that's in, any, amazing in bird. any video game of all time, by the way. Uh, that's incredible. But you have this character who's like very obviously benefited from this system. Right, like, mm. like without a doubt, in order to get up to where he's at, he would have had to be really terrible to a lot of people by design, um, yeah. and and then he becomes a a, a spy and then a du- double crossing spy. Um, yep, <laughs> and, and that kind of like his his entire character arc is kind of that where it's like, okay, I am. I have benefited from this for sure, but I also don't agree with it up to a point. So does that do his, and and the game itself doesn't really explore it, but it's something that I thought a lot about as a character for him on replaying it is like, does his, what do his prior actions have uh, an effect on his present actions and how does, this affects my understanding of his character going forward because he does like a lot of really amazing things and the the entire idea of avalanche inspires him and changes his perspective and he says Mm. as much but at the same time he's also bouncing around on kate sith in the golden saucer right before he sacrifices himself in the temple of the the ancients yeah is, is threatening them because he steals the keystone, and he's like, oh yeah, and by the way, if you don't cooperate with me, here's a voice uh, over of Marlene being taken care yeah. of well, Ooh. but like, just so you know, I have her. I didn't want to do this. And it's like, okay, what, like, 
where is this character at and what is he thinking? And it's a it's a good, nuanced, incredibly gray look at what happens when someone is part of an incredibly toxic societal system and how they handle it and how they can do really good things and also do really, really awful things mm-hmm. um, and, and be aware of all of that. Like, it's not yeah. like he's unaware of what he's doing either. So yeah. I hope I like for again, for his, a game that is as unsubtle as Final Fantasy seven is, I think that it's true triumph is that it manages to be unsubtle and have those really random one liners, but also have characters that are as nuanced as uh, Reef Twisty. So I, th- I think that's really interesting. And if there's one thing I can say about uh, Reeve now that you've mentioned that, something I hadn't really thought before is maybe part of the reason that Kate Sif, I mean, is designed the way he is in terms of character design, or at least in terms of the story, is that it allows Reeve to act out differently than he would do, you know, otherwise as this very prim and proper, like, you know, secret agent. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm really too hard into that perhaps, but I do agree with everything that you said about how his nuance as a character and how he kind of has still some morals inside of him, you know, like, he's not entirely burnt out, he's not like, you know, one of the goons from Omnicore from Robocop, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree with you, there's a lot more nuance to this stuff than otherwise is presented. Um... If I may just take the conversation into a slightly different direction, I want to talk about something now uh, related to gameplay. Um, so, quick anecdote from me. I've recently played and completed The Witcher 3, including both of its expansions. And I overall liked it a lot. Some parts more than others. But it, along with the time that I spent uh, about two year, three years back playing Dragon Age Inquisition, it's made me realize that there's something that modern uh, RPGs, and particularly Western RPGs, are not doing anymore that I really wish they did. Uh, And this is something that Final Fantasy VII does do, which is it has structured loot, and it also has uh, dungeons in it uh, that are optional throughout the course of the game. They're more difficult in their own right, but they're still woven in very well, and they're interesting places to go. The, the one in particular that really sticks out in my mind because of its atmosphere, because of the challenge it presents, and because of the rewards, is Nibelheim Manor. I mean, when you yeah. walk into that place for the first time, after this is of course post-calm flashback, like when you actually get back to the town, you can skip that entirely. You don't, from my memory, need to go there at all. But, no, but the moment, yeah, it's complete. It's actually completely yeah. Optional. But the moment you go in, you know from the flashback that this is a place where supposedly and to an extent did some serious shit went down, and then you get a, a version of um, those chosen by the planet Sephiroth's theme, but it's just the dun dun dun, and it just repeats over and over, and. This is where the game's minimalist background work and 3D modelling, in my opinion, actually works to its favour, because there's just nothing there. And the music, which, I mean, saying that Nobu Uematsu's music is good is like saying that water is wet. I won't pretend to wax lyrical on that one. But, like, it's just such a chilling and oppressive place to be in, despite its limitations. Maybe even because of it, in some way, you know. Um, but... I love how this place is also laid in terms of the rewards it gives you because 
the easiest one that you'll get, and probably the one that most people get if they've been through there, is I think it's the death material when you go down to the library and you find Sephiroth doing his Superman move out of the uh, library when he throws at you. Um, but yeah. then uh, there's also the optional boss for it in the safe if you can crack that, if you're willing to spend the time to actually get the code for it, which is Lost Number, who's super tough. Uh, unless you're like me and you... Sucks. Absolutely yeah, I yeah. the last time I played through this actually, uh, I played it on my PS Vita. And quick side story here: this was when I was on a coach going to a, a tournament in London, and I was just playing away, and I was getting ready to fight a uh, lost number. And I'd actually picked up um, two white magic skills, one of which was Mighty Guard, and the other of which was White Winds. So uh, at yeah, that point, yeah. the, like most of the game was basically over then for me because those skills completely broke uh, Final Fantasy VII once you got hold of them. Um, but I remember this, and it was just crazy to me. Uh, there was this gentleman who was sat on the seats on the opposite row uh, from me, and he said, "Is that Final Fantasy VII?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Oh well, uh, check this out. Do you want to know what he had on him?" Inexplicably, he had—I think it was the Prima Games guide to it, the actual hard. That's I know! So and he's just like, do you need a hand? I was like, I, I think I've got this, actually. Um, but yeah, you, you of course, if you beat Lost Number, that you then get to unlock Vincent. Um, and on top of that, um, there's also... A, is it Wutai, is it? I think it is. Or is it Wuhai? I can't remember the pronunciation. Wutai. Wu like, Wutai, which Wu you can visit pretty soon after you get the Tiny Bronco. Uh, but you, in turn, only really want to go there if you've got Yuffie. And you can only get Yuffie if you go to a very specific place north of Junon before you leave f- from there. But that's the thing that I appreciate about it, that the, the, the Witcher 3 and um, Dragon Age Inquisition had, uh, they, they didn't have rather, that uh, Final Fantasy VII does, which is that there is optional content structured into the story and the pacing of it. And... Um, and the loot is worthwhile. Like, whenever you found a new sword, for example, in uh, Final Fantasy VII for Cloud, it felt meaningful to you. It was like, oh god, this is a tangible and useful upgrade, and you felt excited to go through these dungeons and get something cool at the end of them. Whereas, when I played Dragon Age Inquisition, I distinctly remember that there's this, like, ongoing quest to find, like, these runes that unlock a temple, and I initially thought, oh wow, this is like the optional JRPG content I've seen, you know, the dungeons, like, I reckon it's gonna be something really cool when I get, you know, there. And I got in the temple at the end after however many hours of gameplay it took me to find all these runes. And the loot that came out of the chest at the end was A, worse than what I'd made myself, and B, was completely law incompatible with the temple itself. So I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, but yeah. I think... Sorry, go on. Oh no, like... I was just gonna say, I think, um, I think one of the triumphs of the game as well is not only that the gameplay, like you said, rewards you even in these side quests, so they don't feel like side Mm. quests, right? And another thing that happens, um, regarding that is that they're individual narratives, so, like, Yuffie's narrative and Vincent's narrative are both really, they don't feel optional, Like, the story that they go through doesn't feel optional because it's still a continuation of here's how this company and all of these other things that are, like, as it expands outward. Like, a lot of games have problems when they Mm. expand outward, right? So, like, it starts in Midgar and everything's very self-contained and Shinra's in charge of everything and and it's simple. And once things uh, expand beyond that, that's when you really get into trouble with certain games. I think... Persona 5 had this problem, actually, where the first 
uh, story arc at the school is oh phenomenal. yeah like just a- actually actually phenomenal like insane like if that's just the game like that individual part it's just so yeah it felt real it sounds um and then it yeah and then as it expands outward it has some in my opinion some still like really large successes that are still personal to futaba's dungeon in particular six with me yeah that's what i was gonna that's what i was gonna bring up i think her and how it ties into her relationship with her mom and her upbringing is really touching like honestly but some of the other ones just feel really disconnected as the game continues to expand outwards. It seems, it, in my opinion, tries to do too many things at once, despite the fact that I still really love playing that game. Um, but Final Fantasy, I, it never feels like that, with one exception that I'll bring Ooh. up in a minute. But narratively, it never feels like that because um, all of these side quests that you don't have to do keep bringing it back to a lot of the central themes of how do we deal with the fact that we have basically like exploited these native people for Mm. so long? How do we deal with the fact that we've been polluting the planet for so long? How do we deal with the fact that this company has their fingers in like literally everything? So when you go to Vincent's story, you learn how he was also exploited by Shinra and also like own personal mistakes that he made where there's blood on his hands that he'll never be able to like he can't get over right yeah. that's his storyline um and then the the whole thing with yuffie how she's super mad at what has gone on in her town because of how they can't they can't fight like they lost a war basically and in in losing that war the only thing that her father who's like the town uh, leader could think to do is turn it into like a yeah. tourist haven, and it's like all of these things are like so. Again, they're like they're they're painful to go through, and but they're also related to the central storyline in really fascinating ways. That if you don't get Yuffie, if you don't get Vincent, it doesn't matter. Doesn't affect like the main storyline. But if you do, it's still incredibly rewarding in a way that doesn't feel at all extraneous. Like, it feels like you needed to find yeah. these characters and you needed to have them be a part of your plot Exactly. Um, um, if I may add as well, actually, to that, um, that's also tied into gameplay because resolving Yuffie's story with her father, with the boss fight with him, results in her getting her ultimate weapon and I believe her limit uh, level 4 limit break as well. And similarly yeah. with Vincent, um, I forget the name of his... It, it, it was eventually Sephiroth's mother. Uh, Shara, was it? I can't... Uh, Shara is Sorry. Uh, assistant. Uh, That's the one, is, yeah. Uh... Like, you find Lucretia in a cave... Um, that can only be accessed via the submarine... And that's where you get Vincent's ultimate weapon from meeting her. So even then, like, the pay... Like, this is the thing I also like, is that... Getting, like, all the ultimate weapons... With the exception of Barrett's, which is inexplicably in a chest... On the, on the way up to the Proud Clod. I remember that. I was like, oh, is that his ultimate weapon? Oh, whatever, who cares? <laughs> like, a, a lot of them are r- r- intrinsically tied into, like, the characters' like uh, arcs. Um, oh, speaking... Except for Clouds, where you have to get GP... Uh, for his final limit break, you have to get GP... Oh, I hated that! It's useless and so tedious. You know, um, I... Actually, you know, that- I have... That was one of the things that I was going to bring up is the only thing I think this game, playing it as an adult, 
I'll admit, playing it as a kid, I love the snowboarding game. Playing it as an adult when you're still like kind of sad about Aerith's death and you're going through Icicle Inn where you still go through that part with Afalna and Dr. Gast. And seriously, someone write a fan fiction about that. It's rife <laughs> with, uh, with storylines, <laughs> just telling you. Um, but, and then you have to do that stupid snowboarding game. And it's like 10 times longer than what you have to go through in the Golden Saucer. So it's just so long. You, you know, um, there, there are parts of this game that are like that, where it's like very obvious, like kind of individual quests that you have to do that are in uh that are in the story and if you didn't say like like there's that whole fort Condor quest which i think if you if you do like that kind of uh you know placing units down and paying attention to what units you have and it's it actually is really cool like a mini game within the, Hmm. the story but if you don't like that and you find it tedious and you don't really care about the reward, and again, you don't have to do it. Like in in this replay I just did, I didn't even go to Fort Condor once until I had to, because um, that's just really not my thing. I think there's there are several points within the game where something becomes kind of tedious because you're doing like a really small movie, yeah, like blowing the air. Oh, that even even that as girl. a kid, I felt that took too long. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, how much, how much breath does she need to survive? Oh my God. Come on. You, you know when you mentioned the um, Game Cloud's level 4 limit break on the slash? I remember, um, this was on my Visa playthrough that I mentioned before, I was trying to farm the points for that from actually doing the battle arena. Um, and so I remember one run of that, and this was before I just basically said, no, I can't be bothered anymore. I, I can easily win the game without having Omni Slash. I, I got to the final... Uh, the, the eighth round, and I was doing fine. I'd managed to get most of the reels onto something that wasn't massively consequential. And I did the reel, I think it was on the eighth one, and it said, your accessory is broken. And my accessory was, as you might guess, a ribbon. So no stats. Yeah, I was going to say it had to be so, a ribbon. No prizes if you're a Final Fantasy fan for guessing what monster popped up next. Was it was Marlboro? a fucking Marlboro. So after that point, I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm not fucking doing this shit. That's a, that's a like throw the controller across the room kind of It was my PSB for admittedly though, so I didn't want to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I I do like some of the mini games in, a, in, in Final Fantasy VII, even as an adult. And I like that they actually were try, you know, willing to try and put them in there just for something interesting. I mean, everyone, for example, I think you would surely agree, is, loves the Escape from Midgar cycle chase. That's, yeah, fun. that's fun. It's even like got a benefit on gameplay. Like if you play well in that, you have more health for the subsequent most of all boss fight, which is pretty neat. Um, yeah. I think the big thing with minigames for me is that they have to... And, and Final Fantasy is successful and also very unsuccessful in this at times. Is they, ha- they still, for me, I want them to have some sort of impact on the story or like... Uh, I want them to feel like it's rewarding me for the effort that i put yeah. in uh or um so i think in some cases like the snowboarding down from icicle in is too mm. long uh just as someone who very recently last week went through it i'll just throw it out there it's too long <laughs> i like the um, bicycle fit the cycle thing though because i feel that actually of itself is a reward for everything you've gone through like the whole shimmer sequence like yeah. i'm not saying it's overly long i think it's 
perfectly paced, especially given the mood shifts it goes through and all the boss fights and such. Uh, by the way, the way in which the game deals with the sh shift in atmosphere from the, like, again, despite its technical limitations, from when you're in the prison cell to when you wake up and all the guards are dead. Like, that's, again, mostly the music and some changes in, like, blood splatters on the floor. But it's still really, really chilling. It handles that brilliantly. Well, and also, like, the to that point, it's like, uh, that's the last, like, pause you get, really. Uh, I'm not saying it's the last time you can save your game, because that's something different. But it's the last lull in action that you get. Like, this, the subsequent... Um, like story that that goes right after that is just so you you want to keep playing it because it's the introduction like you you kind of it's reorienting you for your place in a larger world and in that way again i think one of the narrative triumphs of the story is how it transitions because it manages to reorient you in like oh man President Shin, so so all this happens within a span of like, I don't know, a half hour yeah. of gameplay or something. Uh, if you're if you're like dicking around like me, I mean I'm sure you could do it faster. But like, President Shinra dies. You have this new character that you still really don't know in in red, uh, in red or uh, uh, Nanaki if you want to call him by his actual name, um, and then you know, you're like, okay, what happens next? Rufus immediately shows up hair. because there's always someone. Yeah, there's always someone to take over. You have two boss battles with two separate parties. You escape on the old, like, Shinra vehicles. So, like, in, in terms of a narrative, it's showing you, like, like killing President Shinra does, does like jack yep. shit. If anything, right? we get a different flavor um, of uh, corporate tyranny, and that's, Ru that's Rufus' yeah, speech, like, yeah. Like, it's just... It, it's not like Shinra's dead. You you basically did nothing. So, and then there's this whole other thing going on that you don't understand. Cloud is just like very oblique about it. He's like, this is real trouble for the planet. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'll explain later. And he explains in Junon with the faulty flashback. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have this motorcycle chase. It's like incredibly frenetic. Another boss fight. And then just them standing at basically like in, in this in a figurative sense the edge of yeah, the world yeah at the end of the the like highway that just kind of ends and then they climb down and it plays ahead on your way on our way and it's just so freaking good in terms of making that transition from something that was very insular and like we're in this city to there's this entire world like we say we're fighting for the planet figuratively but like literally there's an yeah that's the, like the scope expands it. like as you say i i i had legitimately not thought of it like that but you're entirely spot on with your assessment again god it makes me like the game even more as a result but i suppose i'd be remiss if i didn't mention at this point that midgar in itself you could have set the entire game there for my opinion like it's so atmospheric and so well designed uh visually even again despite the limitations of the engine um, I think uh, I think that's what they really so like 
I know a lot of people, uh, one of my friends was expressing his concern because he's a huge Kingdom Hearts fan, which I, I'm not. Kingdom Hearts kind of missed me. I have never played any of them. When it when it came out, I played the first one. It was really fun, but I never got super into it just because it didn't come at a formative time for me. And I was in college and doing a bunch of other stuff. Like I was just really busy. I played through it. It was really fun. I didn't follow up on playing any of the other subsequent games. Um but he was saying how Kingdom Hearts was like this very long, drawn out over years and years and years and years and years and years of waiting. And then the finale is something that, from what I've heard from all angles, fans really appreciated, but is also very convoluted and like incomprehensible to someone mm. who hasn't played through every single piece of Kingdom Hearts content. Um, and again, I don't know if that's a fair assessment. I'm just going by what several Kingdom Hearts fans have told me directly. So feel free to, like, if, if a commenter disagrees with that, please tell me why. Um, because again, I can't come at this from an informed perspective. I've only played the first. And I think the, the pros and cons of having a remake of this game is that the entire first section, right? The one that releases on, um... Like in a few weeks, right? Yeah, April tenth. Yeah. Um, Jesus, wow, that's that's coming up. I'm gonna have to play a ton of Animal Crossing and then then, then go into Final Fantasy and somehow still watch League of Legends. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to anyway. put on my bubble suit and go uh, to cover my PS4 from my friend. Um, I think that it there's a lot of strengths from being like Midgar is something that we really want to explore. We want to explore this urban environment that is very uh fascinating and very like there's obviously a lot of uh again from a from just looking at the uh remake trailer that they released not the one that goes through wall market but the one that's just the bird flying in and going through the, the playground and stuff like that, yeah they yeah, they revisit a ton of settings in, like, Sector 6 and, and Sector 7 that you previously only saw from a top-down perspective. And it's like, okay, we're really going to bump out this Midgar section. And from, again, I can't, I can't speak to this directly, but, like, it really does look like they're fleshing out a lot of stuff about Midgar and its role with this company and how this company has affected this city and how it's also tied to the city itself. And I, although I can understand people's concerns that this is going to be like very long and drawn out, I don't, I don't know definitively how many sections they've said the remake is going to be. Do you remember? Um, I want to say three, but like I'm totally pulling that number out of my ass. Because I know, I know that they've confirmed that the actual whole thing is done, but whether or not they then choose to simply do Midgar and then everything else I'm genuinely not sure on um but I'm sure we'll find out soon enough but I mean yeah th- the thing is like Midgar itself though as a, as a place like I think that in the time that you're there in disc one you only visit sector seven sector six um the church of course uh the Shinra building various sewers etc etc but that's really about it there's still a whole wealth of places that we don't get to see and the the number oh you're right yes but those are you don't get to explore the city you're literally just in uh mako reactors that have very similar it it must be said though like i i do feel for the team who made this because if you think about it like 
Midgar, I think, is probably the location people will be, remember the most out of, like, um, Final Fantasy VII if they played it originally. Um, other places, I mean, Cosmo Canyon, that's probably up there, I'd say, but Junon as well, but nothing's going to compare to that. Not No way. I mean, they, they've been very good in recreating a lot of the iconography in particular, like the Loveless poster. If they hadn't put in that in there, I know people yeah. would have had a strong reaction. It's like, where is it? Why is it not there anymore? Even though it's completely inconsequential, yeah. but it's part of what we know um, of Midgar. So, I'm also I'm also curious because again, it really looks like they're bumping out this wall market section. Hmm. I'm really curious to see how they. Yeah. Do. Because the the original wall market had its like its issues but was also very formative i think for a lot of people and there's there's value in that and i definitely i want to see how they're going to handle it in this more modern era yeah um i also just want to see like i want to spend time in wall market because there's a lot of like really random weird characters in there that i want to know like I want to know the guys at the gym. Yeah. You know? Like, what are what are that? What are they up to? Like, what's that gym about? Uh, <laughs> or like the the uh, man who comes back to make clothes because he feels really uninspired because he just feels like his life is worthless, and you convince him to go back and make the dress for you. Like, I want to know more about him. Oh, what about the store uh, with the gun in it? <laughs> Yeah, like, why is that there? Um, or that guy that's making a pot of soup in the middle yeah. of the street. Uh, and I think that, you know, from my understanding of the way that the remake is going to work is that its perspective, rather than uh, a top-down view, is that it's more ground level. And I think that could really help sell, like, those environments more than the original could. Even if they were graphically, fidelity-wise, like, the same. So, yeah, I... I really need to get my PS4 back, damn it. They, I hope... I hope they keep a lot of these random encounters mm. in, you know? Like, I hope it's not just fights and then story. Like, I want to see a lot of the random people that you can talk to. Like the guys on the train. Like the people at the train station. Like the people in the Sector 7 slums where you just randomly, like, walk into their houses. Like... The sector, I believe it's sector six, right? Is where yeah. Eris's house is. Um, where you talk to the, uh, you talk to that guy in the sewer who's very obviously a Genova reunion, like prototype person, where he's just like gagging and like uh, he has a number on his mm. arm. Um, and so that's like really early foreshadowing of of what is actually about to come with all the Genova clones. And it's just, uh, I want to see that. I want to see the like really random NPC reactions because I feel like just having replayed the game recently, they offer, I mean, I haven't finished my replay, by the way, I just got past, uh, I'm just at the reactor now. I just got past Cloud's whole internal dilemma, which is another thing that I want to touch on. But, uh, I think those those individual NPC moments really add a lot to the game in terms of just seeing what your average person is saying about the world and that, in my opinion, for a game that's trying to tackle the subject matter that Final Fantasy VII is, is super... Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, right, so something else I want to bring up. Um, 
in relation to the original is this is again something I think that speaks to its quality despite the fact that as a game it is very technically limited um, in terms of its graphics and such and don't get me wrong folks listen up that's not me bagging on it that's just it is just a matter of fact like it was on the PS1 it was on three discs it we're not expecting much obviously for the time I think it was quite an achievement but what no I, I remember being like whoa I didn't realize computer games yeah when I was like really young exactly and something i want to mention therefore is that the direction and storyboarding of a lot of the scenes despite the limitations of this engine is really noticeable and in my opinion really strong i mean the one example i can think of um and i'm sure you'll agree with me on this is um what's the name of eris's stepmother uh Elena? No, Elena is in the Turks. Uh, oh my gosh. I'm blanking. But I'm pretty sure it begins with an Elmira? Yeah. Okay, that so right. Elmira, um, like, after Eris is taken by the Turks and after you've escaped from um, the plate collapse, we get the flashback about how Elmira came to adopt Eris and also what happened with the war and her husband being away. And whole. It's so sad, sad, but the scene is just so well-directed. Like, the pans up, like, when we go from past to present, for example. Uh, The fades to white. All the people getting off the train and, like, embraced with, like, the swing around the lamppost. For all that this game is technically limited, so much thought, in my opinion, was put into that. It's kind of crazy. Even, like, how characters emote. You can barely see their eyes on a CRT when you play this game originally, but there are characters who close their eyes when they're, you know, in thought or sad. Um, Like, characters who turn away from each other when they don't want to look them in the face. I mean, look at the scene between Barrett and Dine, for example, in uh, the prison. Oh, God, yeah, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah, Um, it's crazy. And even then in the game's more humorous moments, like how... I mean, we all remember, of course, when um, Barrett uppercuts, I think it's Bix in the basement... (laughs) Yeah, where he just, like, like cold cocks him and then, like, jumps on, uh, like, doesn't even get on the arcade machine. He just, like, j- physically, like, jumps yeah. off onto the first Exactly. Floor. And also, when, when he's done that and Cloud is leaving, like, he starts going at the punching bag even harder because he's pissed off. Like, this, this yeah. game has... This is only just a small subset, this, by the way, folks. But, like, there's so much, like, direction to, like, what's going on in actual personality... And that's even, like, going towards, like, some of the sillier things, like the fact that, of course, you do go crawling through a toilet... Uh, sorry, not a toilet. Uh, an air vent above a toilet to go and listen in on the Shinra core. Um, by the way, are you excited to see Palmer get hit by a truck in high definition? Yeah. Yes! I, 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 don't know, I don't know why that's in the original. I can't not mention... It's so random, too. It's, like, there are a lot of really random... Like, again, like, I think... In, in in bumping out Midgar, um, and this actually is not based on anything I saw. Uh, like, I'll put that right out there. This, this presumption is only based on trailers that everyone can see. It's actually not based on anything I saw in the mm-hmm. game. But it really seems like we're going to get to know more about our Shinra crew mm. uh, and, and their motivations. And I'm kind of excited for it. Like, uh, I think we're like in even just in the trailer, right? We have like Palmer drinking tea, 
We have Scarlet using one of the soldiers as a footstool. <laughs> um, we have uh, Heidegger laughing uh, and, and just like generally being an obnoxious bully. And then we have Reeve pleading with them to not um, not do whatever they're going to do. I presume drop the plane. Mm. Uh, and that is like, I think just based on the trailers, we're going to, and, and just based on the fact that this is going to be really Midgar focused, this first part, I think we're going to see a lot more from them uh, and, and get to know their motivations. And that probably means that they're just going to be obnoxious, terrible people, but I'm, I'm all for it. Like, like it's going to be really mm. fun to see those characters yeah. kind of uh, flesh out. I, I'm with you on that. Do you reckon we'll also get to see the amazing uh, moment when Don Corneo is confronted and they all keep leaning in on his bed saying, we'll cut it off? We, we, we bet. Like, people like, riot. I know. Like, you you have to have, uh, you know, the, the threat that they're going to uh, cut this guy's dick off. It's it's a very highly, highly anticipated. <laughs> I know it's. Um, oh my god! One one thing I wanted to ask you, just because I want to get into it, because I think it's a true strength of the game, and it does a, like such a good job of preparing the person for this and leading up to it. Is what do you remember of Cloud's mental breakdown and like reassembly, and what did you think of it when you first played it? I don't know if I could probably answer that as a from i'll give my answer best i can as a kid um but i only really came to properly understand this later on um but like i think it well first off we've got the obvious fact that he lied like deliberately in the flashback like there was no compulsion for him to lie at that point like you can argue after a certain point it's the genova cells in his makeup like fucking with his brain but there is i think a distinction between his own deflated ego and sense that he is a failure um and then the external facts of like the mind control element that comes in there and i'm glad that they kept the former rather than it being strictly just the latter i think that that's important to help him be more fleshed out as a character that he does feel that sense of failure that he never lived up to being like zach for example or even sephiroth um so that i think is quite key i like how the game uh, displayed it as well like um in terms of like how you see him like splitting out personality wise into like you know different like elements like i think it's when in the moment particularly before the northern cray bit when sephiroth's like a corpse i suppose is in ice like and you see him like split into different people um it does a good job with that as well i i think it did a yeah i think it did an overall pretty solid job of that but my memory's a bit more hazy on that than i'd like um uh, I, yeah, I just wanted to go through it because I just definitely it. Please, please do. And it really struck me a lot more as an adult than it did as a kid. As a kid, this was also mind blowing to mm. be honest. Like because it just narratively, not thinking about how it relates to me in any way. Narratively, you have the initial setup. This is Cloud, ex soldier, first class, childhood friend Tifa, etc. Then you have the story in Junon, where Tifa is very, like, obviously uncomfortable with his retelling, but just kind of accepts it. And everyone is just kind of like, okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then you have, and again, this this part too is also optional. 
uh, Gengaga, which I keep wanting to call Gonzaga due to uh, <laughs> A basketball teams, by the way. Um, you go to this like completely optional village and you learn about this guy named Zach. Mm. Oh, yes, and that's right. Completely unrelated. And you don't know like why this isn't important unless you've already played through the story. You're just kind of like, oh, okay, this guy disappeared. And you find out that he was Aerith's boyfriend. Mm. And that's it. And you then get the... Um, you then go to Nibelheim and you find that none of what Cloud said seems true. Despite the fact that he's like, no, it definitely happened. Like, this definitely happened. Mm. And then you go to the golden saucer where um i never really paid attention to like who you quote unquote want to date so i always end up with Aerith for some reason but you know how you go on that date on the golden saucer like roller coaster or something mm. and Aerith is like i want to so like she tells cloud specifically she's like i want to meet you and he's like what do you what are you talking about i'm right here and she's like no i want to meet you and like in the moment, you're just like, okay, Aerith is being kind of... Like, Aerith is such a great character because she's, like, so funny. Like, she's actually yeah, so like, fucking funny. For, for what you... But she also just has those moments where, you know, she's, like, leaning her ear down trying to talk to the planet. And it's, like, visually hilarious, but also, like, very serious. Like, she's the last of her native population. And she takes that very seriously. And that that spirituality is part of her everyday life as well. Mm. And so you're, you just kind of write this scene off as like, like if you're, if you again are doing it on your first playthrough, you're just like, Oh, she's just being weird again. You know, like that's her character. And then you go through the whole Genova reunion section and, and it gets creepier and creepier, right? Because you have cloud losing his shit in the temple of the ancients and then which is then subsequently followed by cloud losing his shit and almost killing Aerith, mm -hmm. and then cloud losing his shit again <laughs> in the whirlwind maze um and then everything is supposedly revealed where it's like okay none of this ever happened he's a complete like like failure um he was one of hojo's experiments that was the worst one. He's not accepted by Hojo. Hojo's like, ah, this was a success until Cloud tells him who he is. And Hojo's like, ah, you're still a failure. So he's then rejected. Like, he feels rejected by his friends, even though they don't outright reject mm. him. And then he is rejected by Hojo. Um, and he, you know, institutes the meteor strike. Yes. Uh... And then you have this whole thing where you're picking together his brain. And at this point, having gone through all of that from gameplay perspective, you're just like, okay, we're going to find out that this is a mess. You know, like this, you go through the pieces, the first like two pieces, I think, in his mind uh, of, of Nibelheim and their initial meeting in Midgar. Hmm. And you're like, okay, this was definitely a lie. Like he was not who he you know and tifa has just been covering it up but then tifa asks him to find a memory that they would both remember but that hasn't been like she asks him to introduce a memory first mm. 
And the memory he chooses is the fact that Tifa was always super popular and he wanted to be friends with her. And that whole scene at the yes, well. Yes, that's right. Was the first, like, actually one of the first times that they talked face to face as people. And that he was responsible for, not responsible for, but he was accused of being a really terrible influence because she, the day her mother died, she wanted to go to Mount Nibel and he followed her there and they had an accident and she almost died. And it's like, it does it so well in terms of being like all, when all of the pieces fit together and it's like, he was there, he did save her life. He was the, the Shinra soldier because he was too yeah, embarrassed that's right. to reveal his face. And then on top of that, when Tifa's like, I'm sorry, I should have paid more attention to you. He's like, no. I was a shithead. So I think for him, for the game to just come out and have him say like, no, I was a shithead, like, is really important, Mm. I think. Because everyone is kind of like, again, this is a nuanced situation where everyone does wrong, like things that are quote unquote wrong and also does things that are quote unquote right. And in reconstructing Cloud's mind, it just hits so much harder if you're an adult and have ever dealt with any sort of, like, I don't know, failure, like actual Mm. failure, uh, or any sort of imposter syndrome, or any sort of, like, social problems or social interaction, and, like, I'm I'm definitely there, um, and... And yeah, that hits like really, really yeah. hard. I, I mean, it's like in the end, the truth is not that he was never there, but he, as you say, he was. Like it's a, it's a blend of the two. Um, but he doesn't do it for any like sort of like, well, I had to lie to protect you from you know this conspiracy. Like it's just because he's genuinely embarrassed for himself. Like for the character who presents himself in the very first moment of the game as flipping like from somersaulting off the train to, like, be the coolest person ever, which in itself is part of that persona of his. Like, it's very, um... It's very... It's more dimensional than you might expect for a lead character like him, but I also think it's fair to say that Cloud, like, he's not presented necessarily as, like, uber-masculine, shall we say? Like, he's not... You know, he... he... No, I, I've actually always appreciated yeah, I think, that. Yeah, I think that's a neat element to it, like, it, that he's not, you know, just... How how best to put it? Like he's he's not generic either. I would say, but he's certainly not presented in the same way that say Barrett is, because <laughs> Barrett again. No, but I think yeah, I think the the game really wants to. I think the game really wants you to see him as generic as someone who like. There's like a squall for oh, example. Oh boy. <laughs> And a lot, a lot of people, again, like, I actually love Squall's character arc, but um, putting that aside, he is a lot more generic. I don't want to care about anything. I, I, I really, like, am trying to be very mercenary. I don't, I've, I've buried all of these complicated feelings. Um, and part of that is, like, the, the incredible massive cop-out. But I won't get into FF8 spoilers too much. But he's basically buried a lot of his actual feelings and his sadness and pass it off as this very, like, I don't care about anything Mm -hmm. attitude. And Cloud is introduced like that, but as you get to know him more and more and more, he's not like that at all, even from the outset. 
Um, also, one thing that I do want to say that I can say about the remake is that his gameplay is reflected. Like, he does all of these, like, super unnecessary flourishes <laughs> with his sword nice. while he's fighting, and it's so good. Like, it's so funny. I don't know if anyone else will find it funny, but I found it hilarious. And That's fun. amazing. Imagine if in the later game, like, he toned that down a bit. If they actually took the time to animate that so it was just more... That'd that be would funny, be that would, actually. That'd be really that'd interesting. Um, Alright, so, I have a couple of things to ask you as well, actually, just to get your perspective in. First off, I want to point something out from my perspective about the way the story progresses, which is you could, if you wanted to, although I don't agree with it, and I'll explain why, you could make the argument that the villain's Sephiroth. You know, he wants to become a god, etc. But I think the whole thing that needs to be tied back um, to the start of the game is that Sephiroth is a creation of Shinra. Like, all of the world's ills, for the most part, save for Genova's actual arrival as an external calamity. But, like, Genova itself was, like, used by Shinra to create Sephiroth and the Mako soldiers and all that lot. And I think it's important to always remember that they are still the true villains in the end. Like, they created something that was then unleashed upon the world and is literally going to bring about its end. So I think it's important to remind ourselves when you, when you talk about this game that, okay, you might think it shifts villains at the end of Midgar, but it doesn't. Um... But there is one thing I wanted to ask you. How do you feel about the fact that Shinra arguably are partly responsible for saving the day with what they do with the uh, Sister Ray, blowing away the shield around the North Korea? Granted, they wanted to kill Sephiroth of it, which it doesn't, but they at least, you know, were trying to help in that respect. Because they use, of course, all the Mako energy from the Reactors to do so. Um, is that contrary to the message of the of the game or is that actually some way complimentary because it says that it's not necessarily that you know that it's used at all but rather it's how it's used that's the problem i think uh i think it doesn't it doesn't answer those things for you which i think is really awesome um i mean obviously that leaves it up to interpretation which means i feel like there are a lot of a lot of fights about what happens and who's good and who's not but to return to my earlier point regarding getting to know more of the Shinra group in the Midgar section and also just having a character like Reeve where you can't point to him and say this person is totally good and totally redeemed and you also can't point to him and say he's never he should never be forgiven for all of the things he did because he did change and that that in and of itself is also really important mm -hmm. i think shinra in my from my perspective is ultimately still self-serving like they created this problem uh, yeah um, to some to some extent like they like not so not only did they create sephiroth but they also again exploited and this is where the professor gast if found our relationship is still really <laughs> weird to me uh someone please i don't have the time someone please write a like in-depth fan fiction of that i'm begging you um it's like you have this you have this guy named professor gast who is just so he seems so freaking nice and he seems so like well respected and his his wife who is one of the she is, like, kind of the last uh, 
native person. She's the last of the Citra, um, because uh, Aerith is technically half Citra, half mm. human. Um, she, you know, marries this guy who also may have experimented on her and is responsible for a lot of these, um, a lot of these, like, presumably a lot of Shinra's experiments. Mm. And it's, again, it's really left up in the air. Maybe maybe it isn't in terms of what, what other, like, Final Fantasy VII uh, stuff fills in. Like, if it, I don't know if it fills in any of the gaps. Again, I don't know of any of the other content around the game. I'm only going off of the game itself. But it has this, there's this idea of, like, this character is presented to you as someone who's very nice, who's very well-respected. You know, Sephiroth says, like, Hojo, you'll never be Professor Gast. You'll never be this person. You're not as smart as him. And Hojo's presented as, like, this above and beyond, like, cartoonish villain, yeah. you know, where he's just so detached from any idea of humanity and caring about anything beyond a research He, he looks like Final Fantasy VII's in-engine recreation of Igor from Frankenstein. Yeah, like, he's just, he's so, like, giddy to experiment on people. My press just specimen. cartoony. I mean, yeah. like, that moment, like... Like, he's he's probably one of the most, like, cartoonishly evil people in this, uh, in this, sh- in, I was gonna say show. We're not talking about anime, we're talking about <laughs> Um, and, and then you have, uh, the reason why I bring up Professor Gas, sorry, this is very convoluted. But I promise it is going somewhere. Um, the idea is that you have... He is the one of the people who was with the company as it was coming up, mm-hmm. right? And so I think one of the things that happens with any uh, large company under capitalism is that people can start off with really good ideas and come from really good places and really want to help people. And as things get larger and larger and larger, and as you make more and more money, you lose perspective. Mm. It's just something that happens. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not defending the characters here, but I'm saying Final Fantasy VII is really good at pointing that out. And also to the point where I think the actions with the Sister Ray and the actions that they take because, like, again, how much time, theoretically, is between Scarlet trying to gas Tifa in yeah. to to the northern crater, like, final show. Or even, uh, yeah. Or, like, even the underwater reactors. Heck, never two. mind that. What about them actually using the Sister Ray at Junon to destroy Sapphire Weapon? Like, that's in the same time yeah. frame. And I suppose the answer, now that I think about it, is, well, what was the alternative? They just let the meteor hit? I mean, they do try yeah. to blow it up with the material, you know, the giant material as well. Like, but that again, as you say, is self-serving because then the company, well, it's the end of the world. That's what it takes to get pushed to it, even though what they are technically causing with all of their Mako energy draining is the end of the world. And then, of course, the incredibly creepy Nibelheim ship. Like, oh, we've got these uh, kid giant kindred pogs. What's inside? Ah! Human experiments. <laughs> Collect them all. <laughs> Jesus Christ, like, that that whole flashback is still chills me. Like, all of it. Like, you just find that shit, and then you see Sephiroth losing his mind. It's fiction, mind you. Well, and of, co- and of course he's gonna lose his mind. Like, I'm, I'm not defending Sephiroth. Like, he's a, he is also a shithead. But, like, in terms of someone who is 
rightfully insanely angry about the things that have been done to him and then kind of instead of being like okay I'm going to help fight against this just being so mad that's like I'm gonna side with this thing you fused me with and also try to destroy the world in a more concrete fashion because again like it's one thing to say this is a nebulous thing mm. It's going to kill you eventually. It might kill you. It might not kill you. Maybe it's going to kill people you you know, tangentially. Um, and it is defi definitively killing the planet. And all of these minute things that you do in everyday life could also affect that. As well as massive corporations that are never going to own up to the fact that they're going to be doing something mm. like that. That their their impact is significantly larger than yours. It's one thing to say that because there's a distance, right? It's another thing to say, this meteor is going to crash down and annihilate your planet. Yep, you're right. You're absolutely right. Oh, God. Like, okay. Uh, let... There's a lot to unpack. I know, it's <laughs> crazy, isn't it? And, and it, it really was ahead of its time in like how it viewed corporations and, in, and protection of the environment. And it even was a little self-critical in some respects. I, I don't remember the exact wording of the conversation, but I think in a later seed in uh, Cosmo Canyon when you're collecting the giant materia. Uh, I think uh, Red 13 and Barrett have an argument about Avalanche's own methods um, and the efficacy of them and how it, you know, they didn't really, in some senses, make them much better than Shimmering how they went about things. Um, I, again, don't remember the specific wording of the conversation, but I do remember that being a thing, which I find interesting. Well, and, and there's also, like, that entire conversation with... Guggenhagen, where he's like, this is going to, like, when when he's like, save the planet, like, it, it's already, like, he says, like, it's already too late, basically. Mm. But he also says, he has that entire conversation, I think, with Cloud, where he's like, if we, he's like, you guys have changed my mind in, in as much that even if it is too late, why wouldn't we want to do what we can do? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Like, just that's that's part of like human survival. Like, do we want to go out swinging, even if we know we will go out? At least we tried, rather than just being passive and rolling over. I mean, even though like the rocket, for example, doesn't work, at least it was tried. That's something. Um. Oh, I need. To, I was going to mention, by the way, like, how do you feel about Sid in general? Like, I. I like his character a lot, but I feel that in terms of his comedic beats, he kind of strays too much into the same territory as Barrett, particularly in their mannerisms. But... I mean, I think... I actually think Barrett is fine. I think Sid is a bit more problematic because of his relationship uh, with Shira. Ah, yes. Um, and again, I actually really... This is coming from, like, a massive Sid apologist. <laughs> By the way, I fucking love Sid. He's so good. He steps um, up as but, well. He, like, leads them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, I think that uh, Sid... Uh, I have a feeling that they're going to have to do something with his character to... I mean, if not, like... Lighten the mood is probably the wrong word, but, like... He he takes out a lot of his frustration on Shara. Mm -hmm. For obvious, like, it's not justified at all. We can understand um, that he gets that point, certainly. there's, yes, exactly. Like, you can, it makes sense as to why he does this. 
I'm not defending it again, but it totally makes sense in terms of how he reacts and how this was such a pivotal moment in his life. Um, and you do notice that he kind of, like, I don't know if the game does this on purpose or if it just didn't have time to, like, flesh out his character more and this, or if this was is a very deliberate, like, character change. But he mellows out as soon as he can start flying the, he the high wind. And he realizes that th there's this entire crew of people who, like, really respect him and staged a rebellion so that he could hijack this airship. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of, like, it, again, they don't have as much time to get into his character as they do other characters, since he's, he's a bit on the periphery, right? He's a bit like Yuffie and Vincent, except for the fact that he is a mandatory character. Mm. Um, and his story is equally tied into Shinra and what they've done to fuck up literally everything. Mm. I like by I love the idea of Rocket Sound, by the way, just simply because the rocket is still there. Like you could you could have written that scene where the rocket fails and explodes and somehow Sid still lives, but there's nothing left of it. But like it literally is there. And you can imagine what that would do to a person like him looking out the window every single day and seeing that monument to failure right in front of him. I think that's yeah. great. Um yeah. I think I do think that they're going to have to if not like tone down the relationship that he has with Shara, at least have some point where they where he apologizes to her. Otherwise people are probably going to be mad. Mm. I do, yeah, I do think it's like it's like I said with Black Mason but just more in the sense of writing like if there's an opportunity to keep to the spirit of the thing while also smoothing over its rough edges that haven't aged well, or indeed taking the chance to enhance it uh then definitely do so i would say use it like it's all well and good to give uh, a game like final fantasy 7 a new gloss of paint um but doing something di a little different with it like and that's why i'm glad that even even if i may not enjoy it in the end personally at least they tried to do something different with the combat rather than sticking so absolutely to the original like way it works hmm yeah, I will say the combat is, like, a very welcome change, especially since uh, you can just, like, kind of, ch like, I, I, and I, I will never know how much this is just the fact that I have muscle memory from playing this game <laughs> so many times, but, or, like, remember all of the boss battles and, like, a lot of their strengths and weaknesses, but I could completely check out of fighting. Mm. Well, that's it, like, because it, the muscle memory itself probably isn't too demanding, like, in terms of what you need to do. I mean, especially if you do, like I say, get your hands on a mighty yard. Like, you pop that, you know what, you figure out the weakness and you just go nuts, and that's really all you need to know. Um, but that being said, though, I have to at least credit the material system with doing some interesting things, if you're willing to experiment with it. Uh, on my Visa playthrough, the one where I really put some thought into it, I turned a cloud into a tank by giving him the cover materia but also then giving him the counter-attack materia so that nice. works out quite nicely in the end especially as he got higher level uh, and also got um better weapons as well um so he would cover for Ares, for example when she took a physical hit which is quite nice but yeah the, the bosses are really memorable as well like i mean demon's gate holy crap what a what a fucking boss that was especially when you got to let ba bahamut rip go rip on him for the first time uh carry on was a fucking bitch like oh i'm gonna pick up your guy and put him around on this like merry-go-round like crane thing 
and, and he's out. Oh, and if you die, that's it. Game over. I'm like, oh, thanks a bunch for that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and, uh... This has been uh, this has been an awesome chat, I was to ask before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to add that might have been missed or not talked about? Um, I feel like I did, and now it's, like, gone from my brain, so, uh, if, if I remember it, I'll put it in the thing, but I think, I mean, you'll be able to see me chatting about what I think about the, the remake in full, I'm sure, on social media, um, and I just think that this is a game that does have flaws, um, that you can see but it is also the original has aged like weirdly well yeah. in a lot of respects. Um, and it's still incredibly relevant today. And I think, you know, even I think the, the best like microcosm for this is when I was doing my replay and I tweeted this out on my like uh, esports account, but I, I had like snapshots of everyone in Medeal's reaction to the oncoming meteor strike. Mm. And it's like, there's the woman who's running around with a chocobo in every store, panic buying everything. There's the old guy who's just like, like, I hear this is going to kill the planet. Malarkey. I'm going to live till a hundred. There's so much stuff I haven't (laughs) done. And he's like already 80. There's the woman who just doesn't believe in anything. There's um, another woman who's just like, God, this is so depressing. Uh, it, it like it runs the gambit of like responses to something that is affecting, like responses to an oncoming just crisis, I guess. Mm. And it's so relevant right now. It hurts. Yeah, I I hear you on that, but. I suppose I could end on the note by saying that, well, we all hopefully know how Final Fantasy VII ends, you know. The world does not end. It goes on in its own way, even many, many hundreds of years into the future. So, you know what? I'm, I'm in for that. And I'm certainly in for trying the game out eventually when I get the opportunity to do so. Um, but yeah, I do feel like I, there's probably a lot more that I could have talked about if I had replayed the game recently. But even then, a lot of what I've spoken about like still feels very evocative and very strong in my mind. And I think that speaks so much to the formative nature, as you said, about of the experience of playing it, but also just to its timeless quality as well. And yeah, um, well, on that note, I think we'll call it there. But um, Emily, thank you so much for joining me for this chat. Um it's been an absolute pleasure having you back on the pod just to shoot the breeze for a bit about this particular game. Um, where can people find you if they want to check out more of your writing? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I have two Twitter accounts, not to keep my anime hobby in secret, but just because not everyone on my esports account is going to want to know about anime and vice versa. So AJ, at AJ the Fourth is my anime Twitter account where I have an anime blog that I haven't updated in forever just because I've been really busy with work. Um, but then my work account is at League of Emily. If you're interested in esports, I write about them for ESPN. So. Excellent. All right. Well, on that note, folks, um, I'll just mention while we're here, by the way, that, yeah, it would be remiss of us not to mention that times are tough right now. Like, even if you're not necessarily, you know, sick or unwell, like, it's still a mental drain on everyone. I hope that this time of us just 
waxing lyrical and gushing about Final Fantasy is helping taking a little bit of the edge off that. Uh, we will be doing more content here at Warrior Dash Show in the weeks come to try and, you know, keep everyone's spirits up a little bit. Um, so I'm definitely into that. But I hope that wherever you are and whoever you are, that you're doing as okay as you can be in the best, in these circumstances. Um, and we'll all get through this in the end, I reckon. I mean, like I said, you know, Final Fantasy VII ends optimistically and I'm in for that as well. With that, um, ladies, gentlemen, enemies, thank you very much. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Stay safe. Uh, and as we always say, embrace each other, everyone. It's the end of the universe. Good night. <laughs>